everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire. And all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up, and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am here with my good friend, Michael Simon. Um, yeah, I mean, we go back. We're we're officially now the old guys. <laughs> Welcome, Michael. Thanks for uh, Thank talking about your schedule. I know you're. I know you've been uh, super busy with uh, working on your new cookbook and and filming. So, yeah, it's been it's been a whirlwind, but it's been fun. You know, I, I like you. I, I'm always happiest when I'm, um, like slightly on the edge of the cliff with busyness so it, it just it makes me happier to be really busy than like just sitting around doing nothing um so yeah busy is good for me it, it, it helps with the add <laughs> it's not funny it's like i think that that's actually a really good point because a lot of folks don't realize how many of us in the restaurant industry have add and how God, it's benefited I, us i mean i it's funny like i I mean, I wouldn't know. I mean, they'd have to do a full-fledged whatever, but I'm going to say minimally 70%. Because if you think about the restaurant business and, you know, we start out as cooks and then line cooks and, you know, and when you have trouble with attention, it's like every 30 seconds, you basically have a new little project to start. So you can't ever kind of drift. You're like, like you put up the plate and you're like, oh, wow. And then they're like, oh, fire table six. Oh, new toy. You know, and you, just, <laughs> and, and you just move on to the next dish. So it's, it's, uh, I do think that for whatever reason, there's a, a lot of us that are ADD that, that it, we've, it, I do think it benefits us. Our mind works in a sense that works very well with the restaurant business. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're constantly multitasking, right? We're always solving problems. So I think with ADD, it just keeps us on that, on that role. Right. Of, of that process like okay next you know it's just like what is it squirrel with the dog right and up squirrel yeah squirrel squirrel <laughs> i mean that's yeah that's I, like when i walk my dog i never i'm never surprised at anything he does because i'm going through the exact same mental gymnastics as he is the, the entire time <laughs> my little snappy bull terrier with all that i'm like oh yeah i know what you, I, I know what you're thinking buddy because i'm thinking the same thing <laughs> so for folks who don't know michael and i met on the first season of next iron chef america and we pretty much i would have to say hit it off the moment we hit the ground running <laughs> yeah 100 percent. and i mean that was what was that 2005 yeah that was Ish. a long time ago like yeah. right somewhere in that vicinity yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we we became friends immediately. You know, we it was funny because both of us knew a lot of the people there very well, but for whatever reasons, our paths had never crossed. You know, yeah. like, obviously, you knew Tracy, I knew Tracy, you knew her own, I knew her own. Like, we, we knew a lot of the same people, but our paths just had never crossed. Um, yeah, so we became friends very quick. And we had one hell of a crazy ride on that trip. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, for those of you... For those of you at home that just watch TV, so when when the very first year of Next Iron Chef, you know, they didn't know how the show was going to do. The budget was very small. Um, 
and you know for a production of that magnitude so all the chefs were relatively established at that point like most of us owned our own restaurants we had won a lot of prestigious awards and and all of a sudden we're we're, we're in like a really bad red roof inn in the middle of nowhere cooking at the culinary institute of america that is closed at the time so they don't have any ac or anything on the kitchens were like 125 degrees Yep. Um, the hoods weren't working at, at one point, or they shut the hoods off because of the Down. sound. Yep. Um, Aron Sanchez dehydrated and blacked out. I mean, it was like there was some crazy, crazy stuff going on. I mean, just I just think about the like, okay, we're getting on the Lufthansa flight to fly to Germany to then cook in an airport hangar. Yeah. I think that was the most luxurious part because we all got like the super loungy giant seats in Lufthansa. Oh yeah, because we were doing it with Lufthansa, they gave us good seats. That was <laughs> that was, yeah, that was pretty good. I mean, that was pretty good. I also I also popped a sleeping pill before we got on it, so I was very rested by the time we landed. Oh man, that that whole thing like sneaking out to go into Germany, like into a beer hall, like in the middle of downtown to like go eat in a true. Yeah, spot and then coming. I mean, it was crazy. The whole experience, I, being in Paris, actually, I think was the was the the most fun. Being able to run around to different markets all over. Oh yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, God, it was crazy. I mean, we shot for what probably close to a month, three weeks, something like yeah. that. Um, and I would say probably in that three week period, none of us that made it, you know, to the end to the whole thing to Germany and Paris and like. In three weeks, I'm going to say we probably averaged two hours of sleep a night. Pretty much. Yep. That is, I would say that is very, I mean, for those folks to understand, like we shot the uh, Lufthansa segment overnight in the kitchen. So, yeah, I mean, we so landed, the Lufthansa folks could actually produce the next day for the flights leaving. <laughs> right. I mean, we landed in Germany. They brought us to the airport hangar and we started cooking. Yep. The only the the most sleep I got the entire three weeks was on that flight. Yeah, we were shot by the end of it. I, oh man, so <laughs> that's just a whole other world. Yeah. So let's talk about the beginning, Michael. For you, like, how is it? You know, and what is it that made you want to cook for a living? Like, what it, what was that starter, that kickstart that got you going to say, I'm going to go home smelling like a goat every night. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I, um, and some people heard the story before, some haven't, but I, you know, I was a pretty good established wrestler in high school. Um, I, I assumed that, you know, I assumed and my parents assumed and, uh, that I would go to college and wrestle with, you know, some kind of scholarship type situation. Uh, my junior year in high school, um, in a match for, you know, some people know wrestling, some people don't, I post it out on a cradle and my arm, I, I, the, the, the two bones going up in your arm, I shattered one compounded the other and dislocated my elbow oh. all in one fell swoop. So they put a plate and 12 screws in my arm, <clears throat> you know, reconstructive surgery, basically for those who don't follow wrestling, the injury that I had to my arm was the same injury that Joe Theismann had to his leg um, when he when Lawrence Taylor broke his leg in that football game to give you a disturbing visual of the whole situation. Um, 
that's nasty, so I mean, I, especially being like in 11th grade, being a kid. Yeah. Such yeah. a severe so, injury. So they, I go in, they put the plate in, they put the cast on. Um, the doctor says, you're probably not going to be able to wrestle again. Now, at the time, I, I started wrestling when I was six. So, I mean, it was a major part of my life. Um, and about a month before my senior year wrestling season started, they took the cast off. And, you know, they started to do some rehab stuff. And um, by that point, my my coach, who was a very famed coach in Cleveland, Ohio, at St. Edward High School named Howard Ferguson, who's the, the, the high school that I wrestled at my senior year was our 10th straight national title and 17th straight state title. So we never lost. And he was probably the most famous wrestling coach in the United States. Um he made me a coach of the freshman team because the doctor said that I couldn't wrestle. So I was an assistant coach on the freshman team. So I was coaching um, my senior year and my arm was feeling kind of good. You know, I was teaching the kids some stuff and, and I said to my dad, I said, I, you know, I, dad, my arm feels pretty good. He goes, well, don't tell your mom, but just, you know, test it a little bit, Russell, see how you feel. So I started one of my best friends, still best friends was a wrestler too. So I, I started kind of, training with him a little bit and I wake up one morning and my 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 father worked midnights so like he worked these really weird schedules so I wake up really early one morning because my arm hurts um and my dad was just getting home from work you know he used to get home from work at like six in the morning so like sometimes I would see him on the way to school and I'm like man my arm is killing me and I, we look down and my arm's like three times the size it's supposed to be so <laughs> We go to the doctor. I broke the steel plate in the arm. So then they have to go in, reset it, re-break it, replate it. And to make a long story short, I was in a cast for another year. So I was in a cast for about a year and eight months total. Um, and, you know, it quickly realized that wrestling at the collegiate level probably wasn't going to happen. Um, I would have had to walk on, prove that I was healthy, so forth and so on. Um, so my friend's dad owned a rib joint in Cleveland, Ohio. And I started working there to make money for college, you know? And I mean, my dad worked at Ford, you know, middle-class family. My grandfather was a pipe fitter. Like we, you know, I, I had to figure out how to, you know, he said he would help with college, but I had to figure out how to make some money. So I started working in the restaurant business and I completely fell in love with it. The pace of it, the everything about it. And I remember coming home to my dad and, and I'm like, you know, at the time, you got to remember, this is 1986, 87. There, there was no food network. There was no celebrity chef. There was no, I mean, you know, we had Julia, we had Jacques, but like that was on PBS. Like mm -hmm. they didn't think of chefs. Like I was going to school to be a tradesman, basically. So I, you know, I said to my dad, I think I want to go to culinary school. And he was basically like over my dead body. Like you're not like, <laughs> like we're like you're going to get an education. Like that's what I've worked my ass off is for you to get an education. And, you know, back then the, the really, the only, there weren't a lot of corner. There was the corner of American Hyde park. There was um, Johnson and Wales in, in um, Rhode Island. And I, I think maybe California college, the, the one in San Francisco may have just started or like was brand new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my dad says, you got to go to college. So I go to Cleveland State for a semester and got a 0.2 GPA, not a 2.0, a 0.2. I got four Fs and a D. And my dad goes, how did you get a 0.2? I said, I don't know. I didn't go to a single class. Like someone gave me a D 
just, I don't know. I don't even know how. I didn't take a <laughs> test. I didn't take a final. I never showed up for a class, but this teacher was nice enough to give me a D. So then, you know, I have a, a Greek Sicilian mother who, you know, my dad is six foot four and my mom is four foot 10, but no one's afraid of my dad. We're all scared shitless of my mom. And <laughs> she's Greek and Sicilian, you know, so she's got that temper. So she said, he's going to culinary school. We're not, this. he's no longer up for discussion. So sure enough, now I'm painting a kind of dark picture of my father. I'm very close to my dad. I adore him. So um, we, I, back then you needed two years of restaurant experience to, to get into culinary school. I had had that. Um, I fill out the thing. I get into culinary school. And, and I mean, you remember back then it was like, I mean, I was the youngest kid in my class. Most of the people at culinary school at the time were in their late 20s or early 30s, you know, um, trying to kind of refine their skills. So I I get to culinary school. My dad drives me up there, walking into the dorms. He goes, I'll see you in two weeks. And and I go, what, is there a break in two weeks? And he goes, you're going to last here for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the support, Pops. (laughs) Thanks, Pops. So I graduated at the top of my class and, um, Obviously, it's all worked out very well for me since then. But those were, uh, as I like to say to my dad, you weren't going to let me go. Then you told me you'd, I'd be out. I basically flunk out in two weeks. And now you work for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So from so, there, like you get out of school, you're, you're in the top of your class. What's the next step? Like, where did did you you know, so, head back home or? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I used to work on weekend on weekends, you know, in the city, like doing stages and for different people. And you could always find like kind of little gigs here and there in the city. So, you know, you work a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there from learn from all these different chefs, which was great. And then I, my plan was to, to, um, I had done a stage at, uh, an American place with Larry, um, for a couple weeks. And I really liked the kitchen and the way that he thought about food and all that stuff. And, so I, you know, my plan was I'm going to apply to American Place to to be a cook, um, and then there there we had some family members with some health stuff at home in Cleveland. So I I came home to Cleveland, um, and I took a job at this little Italian restaurant called Players, um, and it, that was in 1989 or 1990, um, and I was hired as a cook. It was this great little restaurant because at the time in Cleveland. Um, you know, the culinary scene was like to say it wasn't strong would be to un- be an understatement. But this was a restaurant that was making all now it seems like oh big deal. But like in 89 or 90 in Cleveland, Ohio, this was a restaurant that was making all their pasta fresh every day, baking all their own breads every day. You know, it was a full from scratch um, in-house 38 seat restaurant with great food and a fantastic wine program. Um, and I was hired there as a cook. And it's actually where I met Liz. Liz was, uh, she was uh, one of the managers and helped with the wine program up front. So it's when I initially um, met her and we became friends. We were friends for several years before we ever dated. Um, but like as, as the, the the joke has always been since then, it's like when, when I met Liz, you know, in 89 or 90, you know, she was my boss. And so technically that worked out very good because she was like, here I still am, years later. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it was good training for marriage. You know? Oh yeah, very good. That's good. Yeah. Oh my god. So you're there. What 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 is the next steps? I mean, you're like 
You've graduated so, school. You're working in a in a for like a restaurant that's doing everything in house, and I think that is really key because I think oh. a lot of folks don't realize like when you're making bread in house every day, and when you're making pasta every day in house, like that's that requires some commitment not only from ownership but from the entire team. Well, and it was so great too. Like it was a, the perfect first job. The the owner, you know, he never called himself a chef, but I'm going to call him a chef. You know, the chef owner's name was Mark Sherry. And, um, you know, it was Mark and four cooks, basically. And we were, we were open dinner only. And we would rotate there. There was one other like prep person and we would rotate different people would come in each like one of us would kind of make the bread every day. So like you would do one day a week, then two day a week, the next week. So you'd come in the morning, you'd make all the bread, you'd make all the doughs. You know, it was it's crazy because this is. And you would know dates better than me with this because of your California-ish thing, your California thing is, you know, he was, Mark was doing um, pizzas with like smoked salmon and 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 lobster and shrimp and things like that. And th that restaurant opened in 1985, which I maybe even before Wolf or damn close. I think it's right around the same time as Spago opening. Right. But this is in Cleveland, Ohio, you know? Yeah. So like, you know, we had all naturally fermented pizza doughs. We made all our own pastas. We made all our own breads with starters. There was no, um, the, 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 things weren't done with yeast. They were made that we, we would, we would back, backwash with the doughs, you know, like we learned just a tremendous amount from this guy who was self-taught. Um, and it gave me a really, at the time I didn't realize it, but it gave me such a great foundation because I didn't go into this massive restaurant where you just worked a station. Like some days you would come in and you were in charge of making sauces. Some days you'd come in and you'd have to make the dough. Some days you, so it really rounded me out a lot in those first two years. Um, and then after that, a, a, a restaurateur by the name of Carl Quagliata, um, who, who had a, a relatively probably the most upscale restaurant in Cleveland called Giovanni's. Um, and th that he had for like 12, 13 years, which was like an old school continental table side, you know, Dover sole, uh, you know, all uh, everything was done table side, you know, type of restaurant, waiters and tuxedos, all Europeans. And he was opening up a new restaurant in downtown Cleveland called Piccolo Mundo. And it was going to be all live fire or it was all live fire. And a, a childhood friend of mine, um, when we got out of high school, moved to Chicago and worked for Let Us Entertain You at a restaurant called Avanzari, um, Tim Bando and, and Doug Petkovic. And Avanzari is where eventually Rick Tremonto's restaurant went um, with Gail Gann. What was it called? Not Trio, the other one. True. The very, true. Thank you. So they ran Avanzari. So when Carl was opening this restaurant downtown, they used to work for Carl when they were younger. And he said, you know, I'm opening up my second place. I, the let us entertain you is so good at running restaurants. I'm going to bring these two guys back. They're going to run the front of the house. So Tim and Doug come back to Cleveland. Doug is now my business partner all these years later, still my Liz's business partner. And, um, and he's like, you know, we, we need to find a chef. And Tim goes, you know, this Tim, I was best friends with Tim's younger stepbrother he goes this this kid that i've known since he's been a little kid he went to culinary school he's working at a great little restaurant on the west side maybe you should go so carl and tim and doug came i cooked for him they love the food 
I was so young still. I was like 22 or 23. And Carl's like, you know, he's not ready to be a chef, but we'll bring him in as a sous chef. You know, he's a cook here. We'll hire him as a sous chef. They ended up finding a chef. And, you know, I was so young and raw, punk, thought I know, knew way more than I knew. Um, and Carl was this, he ended up being a tremendous mentor for me, for me. These, like the first two guys I worked for were incredibly instrumental and for different reasons. But, um, you know, Carl was like old school Italian, learned the industry from his parents. You know, his dad was a butcher. Um, they, they always owned restaurants. So I take this job with Carl and it was a wood burning grill, a wood burning spit, a wood burning oven. Now Cleveland had never seen any of this prior. It, this is what made my love of live fire cooking. Um, and then, you know, like a saute station we made because Carl's father was a butcher. We made all our own sausages in house. We got in whole pigs, whole lambs, quarters of beef and band saws were in the kitchen. He taught me how to butcher, you know, like it was, you know, very instrumental in the way that you and I like to cook. Like, I mean, here I was this 22 year old kid and, you know, I'm breaking down whole lambs you know and he showed me how to use every bit of it he showed me how to make great sausages he's you know using the inners i'm like holy shit this is crazy this is like a whole different world for me you know i grew up i grew up eating some of that stuff because of my culture but not like this um so about a week before the restaurant opens the guy that was hired as the chef has basically a little bit of a nervous breakdown and walks 10 days before opening. So oh, Tim, Tim and Doug and myself and Carl now were at a table and Tim, you know, Tim's very, was very like, you know, and Tim's like, what the fuck are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know? And Carl's like, Mikey will be the chef. And he, Tim goes, him? <laughs> like that Mikey? He goes, he'll be fine. I'll help him. You know, he, he knows the pastas. He knows the wood fired like the pizzas like i'll help them with the with the butchering and the meats and now players chris was a 38 seat restaurant that like on a really busy night we did like maybe 80 to 100 people piccolo was 150 seats with a giant bar <laughs> the first day we were open we did like 900 covers oh so, my god so i'm like overwhelmed and so we get, we're doing friends and family before we even open, you know? And he goes, do you understand how to do the ordering? I said, yeah, I used to do the ordering of players. I got it. So I look at the menu, you know, I get my sheets, I do the ordering. And I'm, I'm like over, I'm like the pasta wood burning station with the cooks. Carl's on the wood fired grill and spits with the other cooks. And um, he was, he, he goes, he goes, Mikey, we're on eggplant. I said, impossible. I just got some in yesterday. He goes, how much? I said, three. He goes, three cases? I go, no, three eggplant. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, he just goes crazy, like loses the shit. Like, what? I mean, he starts swearing at me in Italian, which I understand, unfortunately. I wish I didn't at the time because I'm like, oh boy, I'm going to get fired. This sucks. Three? What do you mean three? I mean, three eggplant of players lasted two days, <laughs> you know, like, so it was a huge learning curve. Um, I, I worked for Carl for several, I worked at 
at Piccolo, it ended up being like the hottest restaurant to ever open in Cleveland. Not because of me. I was in way over my head. But he he drugged me along with him. And the, it was it was the first restaurant in downtown Cleveland that like took a risk on the city and it really made an impact and made a scene. It was a game changer restaurant for um for Cleveland. It was it was a lot of fun. We were working. Doug and I used to live down the street in an old loft in Cleveland. And it was a, the restaurant had a little Italian market. And then we're like, you know, he did all the the butchering and like some sandwiches and breads and stuff like that. And then, then the big restaurant next door. And we literally would work till two in the morning. We'd go home. We like one 30, we'd go have a couple of drinks at this little shit bar underneath our loft. And I think that at the time, those lofts, I think it cost us $450 a month total, like $225 each for rent. And we'd go sleep for like three hours and then we'd go back into work and we did that set with Carl initially said, you guys, we're going to close Sundays um, just so we could like recuperate. We, I mean, we were basically working, I would say 19 to 21 hours a day um, for almost a year. Now I, you know, I'm 22, 23, whatever. It didn't even like you're bulletproof at that age. Um, but like, like, Carl, like Doug was like talking to Carl one day and he's like, he's like, we, we got it. We got to mix some stuff up. We got to bring in some more people. Like, Carl, you know, we're burning out. Is there any way that, you know, we could like have a five-day work week? Like we'll work as long as we need, but a five-day work week, you know? Um, and Carl's like, look, I want you guys to work five and a half days. Like managers for me have always worked five and a half days. That's how we do it. So one day it's like, I got into the restaurant at like five in the morning to kind of get everything going, get the market set up. And it's about two in the afternoon so i was there for what nine hours and carl comes in and i'm i'm getting ready to go home it's like a tuesday or something he goes mikey where are you going i said oh, i'm going home it's my half day he goes what time did you get here i'm like five he goes it's two o'clock i said yeah I, I worked nine hours on my half day <clears throat> he goes how many hours in a day i said 24 he goes what's half of 24 <laughs> Oh, fuck. <laughs> I mean, he was an old school, you know, I mean, he's still, <clears throat> if you and I went to Giovanni's today, he's 84, 85, he'd be at the front desk. Like in all the years I worked for him, I, I, I would say I beat him to work maybe 10 times and I stayed later than him maybe 10 times. Like he was the original, like, first in last out guy like the only way I figured out how to beat him for work is you know he's an old school Italian so he went to church every morning so I knew he went to 5 30 mass so I knew if I got there before 6 45 I would beat him in <laughs> oh my god yeah but it taught me a lot man it taught me a lot about work work ethic how to you know it also taught me you know like you know our cooks have worked hard but like I never like I I always try to do it so like cooks work five days like you know i i do think there's a point like look i did it i went through it i loved every minute of it i would not take a thing back i wouldn't change a thing um now that being said I, you know there is a point of where you're just working too much and you're not productive and you start to burn out and um you know i burnt myself out a, a, a couple times early in my career uh 
just because I, you know, I, I'm, I come from a family of workers, man. You know, my grandfather and my dad just taught me like, you know, always work harder than the person standing next to you. You know, that's, that's how you succeed in life. And, and I, you know, that's always what I try to do, but it, you know, it, it, it did take its toll earlier on my career in my career when I, I had to figure out like a little bit more balance. And, you know, I think like, um, once I started working with Liz full time, you know, when, when Liz and I started dating, um, my stepson, Kyle, when Liz and I met, Kyle was two, when we started dating, he was seven, you know? So, and when we, when we got married, he was 10. So, you know, there was, it, it wasn't just about me anymore. There was other things in my life where I had to try to find some balance in my life. And, and I think, which, I mean, I still worked hard and I still put in a more than normal amount of hours, but I also learned how to find a little bit of balance between work and family and friends and a little bit of extracurricular kind of stuff. Um, and I think when you could find that balance, um, which isn't easy, I still struggle with it. And I'm sure you do too. Like, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's hard. We're, you know, we're like, I always say to people, you know, like I'm a, uh, you know, what do you what do you call i'm uh what do you call the horses that like drag heavy shit like that's that's me at my core. yeah like i'm like a clydesdale like cook it on i got you i'm going yep. you know and i'll just drag it until i can't drag anymore you know and um so it's always going to be a struggle for me and and i most of the time i'm great about it sometimes i'm like okay take a breath it's okay to take a breath like you're going to be fine it's hard. I mean, I, I definitely go through the same struggles. Like when I was not at the restaurant, I would feel guilty for not being there and supporting yep. the team. And then when you're there, you're feeling guilty that you're not at home with your family or you should be, you know, exercising or doing, I mean, there's like this balance. Um, and I think that comes with the ADD of feeling like you always have to be busy. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. It's like, like, I remember when, like very early on, like Liz and I started dating like the first four years, three years, we took a three-day honeymoon. And then our next vacation was like three years later, you know, at Lola, when we opened Lola. And um, we went, we actually went to Napa. We, we went to Napa, we went to see Thomas and because um, we had known him for a long time and we were going to like relax and stuff. And I was just going, 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 going. And she's like, you're on vacation. I'm like, yeah, but I want to, she's like, it's fine just to sit sitting is fine let's just sit here and like I'm like oh yeah I, like I couldn't I couldn't um I had to teach myself how to relax I think that was the hardest thing for me to ever learn was like how to just take a breath yeah. and like like it's it's hard for I can't sit through a movie like you know like sometimes like this is like there's no way you had to pee three times during this movie. I'm like, I just had to get up. I just had to get up. And like, <laughs> I just, I'm like, okay, I'm good. all right, let's go. You know, um, Ajita, right? Is he a yeah. one? It's like, what do you, what's wrong with you? You got Ajita. It's like, cause yeah. you can't sit still. Yeah. Take a breath. Just take a breath. So um, how did, how did that lead into Lola? So, <clears throat> I worked for Carl for um, several years. And then we, um, I, I, someone made me an offer to take over this little restaurant in Cleveland. 
and uh, they were going to financially back it. And yeah, I talked to Carl about it. I thought it was a good opportunity. And he's like, look, I'll support anything that you do. I'll always support you. Like he goes, you, you, he, he, Carl had two girls. So like, I became like his son, you know, um, he was, he's like my father's age. And uh, he's like, you will always have my full support. So I, I try to open this restaurant or, you know, a new chef comes in. I train the chef. We go to do this restaurant. The deal falls through. The The money, the, the guy that was backing the restaurant ended up being full of shit. Deal falls through. No restaurant. I consulted for a little bit. I knew some friends in the business around town that needed help. Um, and then I took a job at this little restaurant called uh, Caxton Cafe. And it was about 40 seats. And at the time, they were doing no revenue. And they were open lunch and dinner. They were doing no revenue. And they said, you know, we need a... We feel that it was a beautiful room. The one owner was an architect. And he designed this beautiful, small, little jewel box of a restaurant. Um, and he's like, we've eaten at the restaurants you were chefs at. We've heard so many great things about you. Consulting. And we know a lot of the same people. Will you, will you come in and... and be the chef of this restaurant i said yeah and they're like we can't really afford to pay you you know um probably what you're worth so maybe you could be the chef and the gm and i said okay well i mean this will be a new learning experience for me and so i kind of do both for a while the restaurant wasn't busy when we first when i took it over and business started picking up picking up picking up then it started getting really busy and then, so I, I went back to Liz and this was before Liz and I were dating. And I, I said, I, I need someone to run the front. And she was still a players, you know, the restaurant that we met at. And she came to Caxton to run the front. So at this time we had the business to support a manager and a, a GM and a chef. And the kitchen was only me and two people. That was it. And and then it was Liz in the front, she, you know, she would work the door, a bartender and two servers. So, I mean, it was Tina. Um, and then this article comes out, you know, a guy came in and he's like, could you, you know, people are talking so much about this restaurant and the food here. It's so different for Cleveland. And um, could I come in and just hang out for a little bit? I said, sure. So he hangs out for like three days. And then two weeks later, on the cover of Sunday Magazine, which was like in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which was, is the only paper in Cleveland, and Sunday Magazine was the most read section for the week. On the cover of it, there's a picture of me, and it just says, Cleveland's hottest chef. And that was like the beginning of everything just went insane. Like, now you couldn't get into the Caxton for months in advance. I mean, it just was booked. You know, this was before all the computer stuff. Like... I mean, we booked like six months out, like six months we're booked. Um, not granted, it was 37 seats or 36 seats. So Liz and I continued to run that restaurant for a while. And uh, and then the neighborhood that I lived in, there was a, a little restaurant called the Bohemian Cafe. And the uh, the owner said, you know, we're, we're, we're out, we're getting out. I used to drink there. Like it was a cool little bar with some food. And he said, uh, do you have any interest in, in taking it over? He owned the building. He, he, it was in a rough neighborhood. He bought the building and had his little bar restaurant in there. Um, he goes, I'll hold paper. You need to come up with a little bit of money. 
Um, so Liz and I are like, let's, let's give this a shot. And we, we did everything inside ourselves with a couple of friends helps a guy named Chris Schramm. I mean, we laid the tile. We, Liz, we, we went to an old restaurant store and Liz found chairs that she liked. We stripped them all, took the fabric off them. She hand, she painted them herself, refabricated them herself. We got the chairs Chris, for $2 a chair, like beautiful old fifties bent wood chairs. Um, like we opened the, to buy the liquor license, to, to give the guy a little bit of money for his place to open. I think we did the whole thing for about $160,000. <laughs> which That's unheard of. Now. Yeah. Which, I mean, this was 1997 and now, you know, could never do it now, but to that, to us then that was like a billion dollars, you know, it was like, yep. we had a little bit of money saved. My dad gave me a little bit of money. My grandfather gave me a little bit of money. And then there was, a, there was a regular at the Caxon Cafe, this guy by the name of Ed Crawford. I knew his son. He owned a big company called Park, Ohio. And he used to always say, if you ever need anything, you come see me. I like you guys. If you ever need anything, come see me. Um, so I, I call him and I said, Mr. Crawford, you know, um, we have X amount of money. I think I'm going to need like another hundred grand. Um, and he goes, put a, put a business plan together come see me next week. So Doug and Liz and I like literally don't sleep for two days. We make this business plan. It's like an inch thick. We put every number, this, that sales. I mean, like, it was like, we built this, it, it was the best business plan I've ever written still to this day. And I walk into his office. I have his appointment. I put on a suit. I walk into his office. Um, he like picks it up and like, pages through it and he goes let me ask you a question michael i said yeah mr crawford he goes is this place gonna work i say yes he throws the business plan in the garbage <laughs> he calls the secretary at the front desk he goes um write michael a check for a hundred thousand dollars he's he'll be out of here in about 10 minutes i'm like what the hell just happened and he goes i'm not gonna make you sign personally for it you have seven years to pay me back i gave you a hundred grand you're going to give me, I, I think it was 207 years. <laughs> and, but if it takes, a, if, if it fails, you owe me nothing. You don't have to sign personally. I don't want to take your life. If it's a success, I'm going to make some money off the success. Um, before you open, I want to come in and pick a table. That's my table. I'm like, that's it. He goes, that's it. I go, do I got to sign anything? He shakes my hand. He goes, nope. <laughs> I walk out. <laughs> the woman hands me a check for hundred grand. I come back at me, Liz. I go, I got the money. She goes, what do you mean? I go, I cashed the check. I, you know, like, we're, we're good. <laughs> and that was it. Like, we were off, you know? And then the, from the minute we opened Lola, it was, I mean, it was was packed from day one. We opened in 97, and, and I think 98, Bon Appetit named us one of the top 50 new restaurants in the country. That same year, I had food and wine named me one of the best new chefs. You know, the beard stuff. Everything just happened like, like rapid fire. And then after I won food and wine, best new chef, Food Network had me on as a guest on um, Sarah Moulton Cooking Live. So I did Sarah Moulton Cooking Live a couple of times. And then they called me up and they said, hey, we're, we're starting this new show um, called The Melting Pot. 
do you want to, I know that, I know that you're predominantly Greek or Sicilian, but you do a lot of Eastern European food at the restaurant because you're in Cleveland. Do you want to be one of the hosts? And, and then I, that same year, whatever, 98, 99, I started on Food Network, um, you know, with Aron did that show, Rocco. Padma did that show. People Padma. didn't realize that. No, they didn't, they, they don't realize it. I have some funny stories, but we'll skip those. But Padma, Aron, Rocco Despirito, Kat Cora, Michelle Bernstein, um, myself, um, my co-host, Wayne Harley Brackman, uh, who was Bobby's pastry chef. That's when I got to be very good friends with Bobby. Um, yeah, just like all these chefs that have, are, have now been on TV forever all started on that show. You know, back in 1998, not a lot of people watched Food Network, so we were able to learn on television. And Mark Disson, who you know, was our producer, and he taught us a ton about how to do TV and um I mean, it was, it was like, it was almost like, you know, doing that show with Mark, it was almost like we were going to college, you know, it was like, he taught us like how to cook on television. Crazy. Okay. Yeah. 98 was a crazy year for me. I mean, between the bone app and the food and wine and food network, that was, it was like a really, really big year. And for folks who don't know, um, there was also the Michael Ruhlman situation that was going on as well. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So that at that, <laughs> at that same time, um, you know, so Cleveland, oddly enough, is this very crazy. There's some crazy culinary connections in Cleveland. So there was a woman named Susie Heller, who's like my culinary mom, I always say. And uh, I haven't seen Susie in forever. I miss her. Yeah. So I, I just talked to her about a couple months ago now, but like, you know, so Susie's from Cleveland and Susie was the culinary producer for Jacques Pepin and Julia, yep. you know? So when I was chef at those restaurants for Carl, Piccolo Mundo and, and, uh, um, and Giovanni's, Jacques and Julia used to come in and eat all the time. Like, I, like I was, I, the first time it happened, Carl comes in the back and he's like, um, hey, Michael, keep an eye on table six. I go, why, what's going on on table six? He's like, well, Jacques Pen and Julia Childs are here. I'm like, I'm going to throw up. I got a puke. <laughs> and then, you know, at Piccolo, I remember one day Susie comes in and, and um, she, she was with Thomas. And it was when Thomas Keller was, French line wasn't open. He was, he was, uh, he was chef at Checkers in, um, in LA. Um, which was after he was chef. I, I had met Thomas briefly in New York when I used to stage for Richard Krause um, uh, at uh, Thomas was chef at Raquel in New York. So, um, you know, he went from Raquel, I think to checkers and then French laundry. So, so Thomas was in Cleveland a good amount because of his relationship with Susie. Susie introduces him to Michael Ruhlman who, you know, becomes then becomes Michael Ruhlman. Um, and so Ruhlman says, hey, I'm, I'm going to write this book um, called Soul of a Chef. And, you know, it's going to be you, the young chef, Thomas Keller, the slightly more established chef, and Brian Polson, the chef who, like, is trying to become a certified CMC. And so, you know, when Lola opened in 98, Ruhlman was doing Soul of a Chef, but he was also starting to work on the French Laundry Cookbook. And so Thomas would come to Lola all the time. Like, you know, and at the time, like, here's what some, the younger 
people, kids just might not realize is like, you know, what Thomas was doing in French Laundry, I mean, Charlie Trotter, I think, did it a, a little bit too. But like, to me, Thomas changed the way Americans dined for that period and like how people like, like, he was like, he wasn't everybody's chef, so to speak, but he really changed the way I think a lot of young cooks started thinking about food. Um, like, uh, especially once the French Laundry Cookbook came out. So like before the cookbook came out, I don't think a lot of people knew Thomas that well, but like he would come at Lola and, you know, I had this tremendous respect for him uh, because I, I had eaten at his restaurants and, um, you know, and he'd say like, try this, try that, try this, which was incredible. But like, I remember the first time Liz and I went to French Laundry. Now Thomas had been to Lola like five times by this point. And he said, look, are you guys going to take a honeymoon? I said, yeah, we're going to take a honeymoon. He goes, come, come to San Francisco, come to Napa, come to French Laundry. I'm like, okay. And so Liz and I go to French Laundry and we sit down and we had 24 courses and nothing that either of us had was the same. So we had 48 different preparations of food and everything was basically a, a two bites. So we would take a bite, switch, take a bite. And I'd eaten all over the world at this point. Like, not all over the world, but you know what I mean? Like we're chefs, like we travel, we eat. That's what we do, you know? And I, we leave and Thomas came out to the dining room and whatever. And like the waiter's like, goes, who are you? I said, well, I know him from Cleveland. I'm a chef. He goes, I've been here two years. I've never seen him come out in the dining room once. <laughs> you know, like he doesn't come out in the dining room. So he really liked Liz. He's always loved Liz. So we, we, we stay at this little B and B like right next to the French laundry and we're walking back and I'm just shaking my head and Liz goes, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm a horrible fucking chef. Like what just happened? Like, and we sat and we could name every single thing we had. And, and then Thomas, like the French laundry couple came out and you know, jealousy and all those things happened and people would like, like chefs would go, I, oh, he's not this or he's not that or blah, blah, blah. And, and I would always say to him, all right, big shot. Name me 48 dishes without a repeating ingredient. And they'd be like, what? I'm like, 48 dishes. with Because when I went there for dinner, Liz and I had 48 different things and nothing repeated other than maybe salt and pepper. Like, it melted my brain. Like, it just... The thing that's really interesting about that is this is pre-internet. This is pre-social oh, media. So like research was done the old fashioned way with books. You took notes. It was based off travel and education. Now there's so much things at your fingertips. It's a lot easier to, um, to have that mindset. Right. But back then it was just, you're living in your own bubble, you know, well, other I, than I, food arts or art culinary. Yeah, and you're looking at stuff and you're reading. And also, I think, like, the stage was a lot more big back then. I mean, now you can't really do it. But, like, you know, we were happy to work for free for three or four days in a kitchen because, like, you'd find a restaurant somewhere that you really thought the chef was incredible. And, like, could I stage? You know, and you come in, you stage for a couple of days, and you'd see things that you never saw before. Like, I remember I had notebooks. I'm, I'm like, I'm making hands like you could see me right now. You know, but I had, like, pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of notes 
from my stages because there were things that you would just learn. Um, you know, you're there for two, three, four, five days a week, but you would see great stuff, you know, and that was the only way to learn or to know cooks that worked in a restaurant that you loved. And you would be like, how did they make that? How did they, like, I had that, how they make relationships. And I think that's really like, we could pick each other's brain. Like, like you just said, you staged, you met somebody, you became friends and then you would communicate. It became this situation of like sharing knowledge in a way that was a lot more archaic than it is now. <laughs> yeah, it was way more archaic, but I also think it was way more um, personal. It, it was way more personal and it made you understand the process. You know, like um, so many young cooks would come into Lola, like Lola, before Lola closed during the pandemic, you know, we were open 25, 26 years. And I would say the last seven, eight years, you know, I said to Derek, who Derek was our corporate chef and, and Doug and Liz, you know, my partners, I'm like, look, we not, we have a responsibility now. We've been in the city for a long time. We've had, we have other restaurants that are do good for us profit profitability wise. I have other ways of bringing in some revenue, <clears throat> but it's our job to continue to educate these cooks to make them good cooks so they could go out in the world and, and, and run kitchens and do the things that we love to do. And so like, I'm like, we're going to do things the old fashioned way most of the time. So like, even if there is an easier way or faster way, like we're not going to do that. So it's like when the young cook, well, I want to sous vide or I want to do this or I want to do that. I'm like, we're going to braise. How about we just braise? What do you think about that? You know, like, um, like, cause like, look, I know you can make hollandaise in a can with a cartridge like and it's delicious by the way but i want you how to learn to make hollandaise so you understand how sensitive it is and part of the greatest thing about being a cook who's in charge of hollandaise is finding that one spot in the kitchen that you could hold it where <laughs> so it's it doesn't warm break. but it doesn't break it's like it is like you found the 10 commandments like when you used to be able to find that spot you're like lasted all night i am a genius this is the spot you know and, or knowing how was, to fix it when it breaks correct so you know you put it in a can you put it in the cartridge you never have to worry about anything you get great holidays you do but what did you learn you didn't learn shit you know so like learn the emulsification learn how to fix the emulsification learn what makes the emulsification hold properly then once we achieve that we can make it in the can you know but i just think that now because look it's great that you could go on the internet and think and figure some stuff out but there is nothing nothing at least for me i'm speaking purely for myself and maybe it's just because i am how i am you learn best i learn best when I am with someone who is a master at their craft and I'm physically doing the craft with them, yep. when my hands are touching it, when I'm doing it with them, when they're moving my, no, do this. When they move my hand to a spot, feel this, touch this, try this. That's what made me a good cook. I could watch something on the internet 4 billion times and not experience that that would took an hour of me next to 
a cook or chef or whomever that had mastered this craft, you know, like working for Carl. I could look online and watch people butcher hogs or lambs a billion times. There's nothing like working with someone who's a master butcher and he's like, give me your hand, feel the seam. There's the seam, pull the seam, you know? Oh shit. Like I used to watch Carl break down stuff like 80% of the way without a knife, <laughs> you know, like, you know, um, and it, it was great lessons in cooking and, and the, look, cooking to me and it will always be about the senses. When you start eliminating the senses, I, I think cooking loses something is even if it's easier or even if the, the, Damn sous vide short ribs maybe taste better than mine. They don't. I know they don't. But even if they we're going to pretend that they did, that there is nothing like the experience of hearing the sear, smelling the, the, the caramelization when it's just about that right point where you flip it, adding that liquid to the pan and scraping that fond off the bottom to bring it back up into the sauce and then putting in the oven and smelling you know, that top fat cap caramelizing and, and when it's just right, like, and hearing the blurble, like, that's what makes great food. No one could convince me otherwise. It's I don't give tactile. a you, you, when, As soon as you start eliminating that tactile component of it, it, it just really becomes fuel, right? right. It's, not, it's not really becoming what we got into this for, which is no, to, and it's not to feed people to food to me and and i believe in this the same thing with you michael it's, it's a big hug right you want to give people a big hug with your food and, and make people feel welcome and warm and i feel when those tactile moments are taken out whether it be part of the educational aspect or part of the the process it just it eliminates something that i think is missing it, it's like it's so hard to put it to words until you stand next to like what you're saying the braise comparative to the sous vide the smell is completely different <laughs> let's just put that out there yeah, there's no smell. The smell of a plastic bag compared to the smell of, you know, roasted plastic meat. Plastic bag and funky water comparative to... <laughs> right. But I mean, like, even like, and there's some things where I'm just like, okay, this is a better way, but we still, like, <laughs> like, we have a restaurant in the Borgata um, in Atlantic City, and we named it Angeline. It's named after my mother. And it's it's basically a red sauce Italian joint. Um, you know, it was it opened up initially as Sicilian, but I was, you know, in, I'm in Jersey and Philly, basically. And people were like, this is an Italian food. I'm like, you know, like, so now we're, we're basically a red sauce tan and it's delicious. I, I love the restaurant. I really do. But we have a porchetta on the menu. So, you know, it took me a really long time to figure out how to make great porchetta. I think it's one of my best dishes that I've made. And so like I'm teaching the cooks and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, one day the, the sous chef comes up to me and goes, chef, he goes, you know, those combi ovens we have in the back. And I said, yeah, I don't, those things scare me. He goes, could I just, I know you're going to get mad and yell and scream. And he goes, but there's a program on here actually for porchetta. <laughs> what are you talking about? He goes, I was looking through the thing. There's a button that says porchetta. <laughs> so no way. So we roll our porchetta, you know, like we do. And and he goes, could we just try it? I said, sure. So we put it in. And and it says 15 hours. You know, it's on a 15-hour time check now. 
and it goes through the processes of low and hot heat and steam and you know it broke it broke my heart a little bit because 14 hours later we took that thing out of the oven and damn it was it the best porchetta i've ever eaten in my life like it was <laughs> so good and i'm like shit and so like that was one where i had to let go i'm like okay we still sourced our pork properly we still you know butchered the belt we you know we seasoned it the way we wanted to season it but we put it in this oven that has the perfect balance of heat steam and timing that and literally now you know they know that people come in the restaurant to start prepping at eight in the morning and they put the porchettas in 14 hours before that and the cooks come in in the morning and they're done you know and then they they go in the sham and they hold and i mean it's like it's perfect every time well, I mean, there's there are benefits to technology, and that let's yeah. be honest, like that that combi oven concept of steam and heat and being able to have a percentage, it, that's a lot different than putting something in a plastic bag. It is, it is, but it's still like I'm like, man, like some of it makes me think it's like this is a skill that it took me a long time to develop. It's a dish that I really pride myself in that I make better than. I'm not going to say all, but most people. And really now anybody can make it just as good as me. <laughs> well, I mean, look at, let's, let's just think about it from that perspective, right? Like look at the idea of mortadella, right? Mortadella mm -hmm. got its name from being in a mortar and pestle, making the emulsification of lean pork with fat in a mortar and pestle with ice. Yeah. It's for the name mortadella. Now, now we use an emulsifier, which could be a Roboku or... Oh, yeah. No, you you're know, right. 100%. It's just we're in a different... Like, now we sound like the curmudgeons, right? Like no, we're the... I'm an old, bitter ass. Like, come <laughs> on, man. And it's like, have you ever tried to make mortadella in a mortar and pestle? It's oh, brutal. forget it. Forget oh, it. It's so hard. I had to do it. Like, I can't talk shit about anything unless I try this part, right? Right. So I tried yeah. it. That was the you hot know, mess. That was... Yeah, you're... Your forms would be like four times as big as Popeye's. It was crazy. But to think that that was actually the norm. So, you know, everything is going to have progression. Everything technology is going to change. It's just choosing what forms of technology we we prefer to use to get a better product to the table. Yep. That's so funny. I can totally see that. I got to now, I'm like, hmm, do we have that program? And it Oh, it's in there. I'm telling you, it's in there. Scroll, because we didn't- Is it rationale or are you using an sham one? A rationale. Uh, I don't. I don't think we have the rationale. We have the Alto Sham one. At, at, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it was already. It was in there. I was like, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. So, Michael, how many cookbooks have you put out at this point? Um, we have seven out. Our eighth one comes out in the fall. And during the pandemic, you were doing some really fun cooking program where you were like cooking with Lizzie outside, which was yeah. So yeah, we we started doing this thing called. Um, <laughs> as fate would have it like I, I always think success is um the combination of hard work and luck like when when hard work and luck come together you know you have success so the it would seem like unlucky it, it the 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 day that the city the day that manhattan closed down I was driving into the city to do a show for Food Network. I get through the tunnel. Um, 
producer calls me and said, they just shut down the city, food networks closed. I said, well, what are you talking? I go, I just got through the tunnel. I go, what do you want to do? I said, mm, I'm going to go to my apartment. We had an apartment in the city still at the time because the chew had just finished up. And uh, I said, I'm going to, um, I'm going to have two double espressos and then I'm going to head back um, to Long Island. I got my, uh, I mean, I call her my niece. She's my best friend's daughter. Liv is with me. She, at the time, she had done all my social. Um, and so we're we're heading back to Long Island. And I I call, you know, David Zasloff, who, you know, the big boss. And I said, look, David, I, you know, I'm, I'm on my way back. We're going to shoot a show. I don't know what's going on. I said, but I have Liv with me. I know we're in lockdown situation. She does all my social. You guys have seen my social. You know, I think we could shoot content at my house. And he goes, give me a second. So by the time I get back to Long Island, we got an email chain going. There's like, you know, 10 people from Food Network on the email chain. And this is basically day one of the pandemic in, in New York. Like day one of lockdown. Um, <clears throat> and they're like, well, we, we don't know how to get it on food network yet from like an iPhone to your house, but let's do it on Facebook live. Like let's start it on Facebook live. Let's just start getting content out there. Great. The next day, day two of lockdown, we start shooting at my house. We, we call the Simon's dinners where, you know, they started inside. I would literally go to the grocery store. Cause remember, remember, cause like you couldn't get anything at the grocery store. So I would have like, I'd go to the grocery store. I would buy whatever I could find. Like, and I'd make a dish on Facebook Live. Liv would shoot it. I would take questions. And we went on live at five o'clock every day. And we did that for 60 straight days. And it ended up getting like, I can't remember what the number was. It was insane. It was like 190 million views or something. Like just like numbers I'd never experienced in my life in that world. So they're like, this is, you know, they're like, could we, we, we figured out how we do it. You think Liv could shoot the show outside with you and Liz and we'll just record them and, and we'll put them on Food Network. So we shot the first season of that show on Food Network on an iPhone. We shot a Food Network show on an iPhone. That's genius. Yeah. And it just, you know, and we're still doing it. We're in season four or five now. Um, it's a, it's fun. And it's still the, the premise. I mean, the, the fun thing about the Facebook live, which, you know, you can't do on, on network so much or on, you know, food network so much is, I mean, it was great because there were just questions coming in. Like people well, would I recall be, harassing you and getting, Oh lived. yeah. Like a lot of my friends would love, they love, I mean, there were my asshole friends that love to harass me, but there's also, but it also made me like, I think the thing that you and I and chefs in general, it's easy for us to forget is, you know, and it was why Liv was kind of great holding the camera. She knew she was 26 at the time. She didn't know much about food. And, and a lot of the viewers know less than we think sometimes. So like, you know, like a lot of times it'd be like, oh, you're using cannellini beans i only have kidney beans i'm like well use kidney beans like i mean we're in the middle of pandemic we can't even get fucking toilet paper like <laughs> you know, don't worry about the bean 
But like, you know, but like, I mean, you and I, or, or, you know, people that have cooked for a long time, they would know like, look, I could sub here, you know, I could sub here. Like, what could I sub? So it, it gave them um, the confidence, I think, to, to say like, oh, all right. Like, I don't have rosemary. I could use thyme, really? Sure, use thyme. It's fine. Well, I think that's I think that's a really good point that you're making because so many when I would go to the farmers market down at the ferry building, I would see people come down there with lists, mm-hmm. right? Defined lists of what they had to have to make said recipe, because people don't know how to detour or 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 switch something out, and they they would be like freaking out that they had a dinner party, and if they didn't have basil in February, they were going to lose their minds. Yeah, and I'm like just. Just get some flat leaf parsley. Yeah, just get another soft herb. It's fine. Yeah, soft, delicate herb, you know? Like, yeah. they were like, but that's not what the recipe. I said, may I see your recipe? Right. And she, they would show me. And it was like, oh, you can substitute. I was like, here you go. You're not going to find this, this, and this. These are great substitutes, this, this, and this. And right. they're like, oh, I didn't realize. And so that that point that you're making of like people not knowing, because they're so regimented in following a recipe because there's fear of making mistakes fear 100% and what like the, the thing that i always preach whether i'm doing a demo a show my cookbook like i'm always like look a recipe is a guide like, unless you're baking unless you're baking 100% but learn the technique yep. if you learn the technique you can make 100 dishes if you learn the recipe make one you know so learn the technique understand the technique and then just cook yep. you know that's why you and I are very similar, Michael. We think the same way when it comes to food. We yeah. Always, we always have. Yeah, 100%. So we're going to play a little game. And okay. then I'm sure you've got to go. So it's a quick, quick questions. No wrong answer. Ready to go? Yep. Okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. With milk or without? Without. Okay. Hamburger, hot dog? Uh, hot dog. Ketchup, mustard? mustard what is whole grain, or, whole grain or dijon grain beef or pork say it again beef or pork pork chicken or duck oh chicken squab or quail squab it covers my duck <laughs> i love duck that was the hardest one ducker I love chicken. Like I, a perfectly roasted chicken brings me so much joy, but I really love duck too. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and like I said, there's no wrong answers because it's just super fun, right? Like right. pasta yeah. or noodles? Uh, pasta. Ravioli or dumplings? Dumplings. Nigiri sashimi? Uh, sashimi. Sea urchin caviar? Oh, shit. Oh, God. Caviar. Lobster, crab. Crab all day. Okay. Define which crab. Uh, you're not going to like my answer. Blue. <laughs> no. Okay. Soft or hard? Hard. See, that's that. I've not heard that one yet. I've always heard soft. Yeah. Um. Now I just lost track. <laughs> Brown spirits, white spirits. Brown. Light beer, dark beer. Uh, seasonal. <laughs> Red wine, white wine. 
uh, red wine. Lambrusco, champagne. Lambrusco. Prosciutto, jamon. <laughs> I'm going to say prosciutto. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This one is a big debate I have, but it's it's a really funny one. So paella risotto. Uh, God, that's hard to paella. Okay. So what's really funny is I have a very heated debate with Jose Andreas on the regular about paella versus risotto. I say paella was made because the Spaniards were too lazy to stir the rice. He says <laughs> he said good. that he said that the Italians are are, are don't know how to control fire. So <laughs> I just I, you know what it is. I love the crust. It's it's all yeah. about you know. It, it's like this morning we were making breakfast. We were doing some stuff for social, and I'm like I'm making crispy eggs. I don't care. Like whenever I make crispy eggs because they're my favorite eggs and the ones that like my grandfather made me when I was a kid. I always get all these assholes. Are like, yeah, that's not how you cook an egg. I'm like, just leave me alone. Like, I love when an egg is like crunchy on the bottom and the yolks are dippy. Like that's my perfect egg. Okay, so here's one. Do you prefer butter for your eggs or extra virgin olive oil? Um, I start in extra virgin olive oil and finish with butter. It's funny because there are people who don't like that. I mean, that's a very Italian thing, using the extra virgin olive oil. Yeah, I start with olive oil because it doesn't brown. I can get the pan a little hotter, and then I, I baste with butter at the end. So, chocolate, fruit. Mm, fruit. There you have it. Love it. Okay, here, I'll give you the last three. Favorite candy? Uh, like like everyday candy? Whatever. Like, you know, uh, take five. Guilty pleasure? Uh, salt and vinegar potato chips with Lawson's French onion dip. Lay's. Lay's salt and vinegar potato chips with Lawson's French onion dip. Favorite fast food? Favorite fast food. I, you know, it's. I, I don't think it's technically fast food but you know i i, I uh um I, I shake shack burger is just really good that's considered fast food is it yeah it is it's up there the fast food chain yeah michael thank you so much if if people want to see what you're doing uh they want to follow you on instagram um, and check out your books where can they do so um chef simon s-y-m-o-n um that's my that's all my social handles that they get they, anything they want to find they can find through there perfect michael thank you so much for taking time today and thanks bro i really i'm looking forward to cooking with you hopefully soon someday soon again i miss you tell love to the family please yes for sure all right brother <laughs>